Hey Bridgetown family, Tyler here with some very exciting and very important information. As of this moment, Super Early Bird registration is open for this year's Holy Spirit Conference for just $70. You can visit bridgetown.church slash Holy Spirit for more information and to register. We are moving out of our venue in our sanctuary and into a venue right in the heart of our city for this year's Holy Spirit Conference to make room for anyone and everyone who wants to attend as we've sold out quite quickly in years past. So number one, I would say we're so excited to serve the Bridgetown family and those beyond our Bridgetown family who will gather with us for this catalytic event. And number two, I would say get registered early and go ahead and and mark your calendars for January 26 and 27 when we will gather together in the name of the Spirit right in the heart of Portland. Hope to see you there. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 13 and 14. Starting at verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So let God, so God let the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea, and the Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. And jump down to chapter 14, verse 21 and 22. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. In 1956, with a budget of $13 million, which was a lot back then, still a lot today, the movie The Ten Commandments was the most expensive and yet the most financially successful movies at the box office. Some of you might remember this, yeah? Anyone else forced to watch it at a young age? Yeah, so good. Now, if you didn't know, This movie was a critically acclaimed film. It had seven Oscar nominations and one giant win at the Academy Awards. Who knew? Now, for some of you, that is ancient and archaic news. You're like, 1956, did they even have TVs then? I don't actually know, like barely, I think, but that's not the point. The point is that this ancient story of Moses and Israel's exodus and the Ten Commandments was a story that people wanted to hear, that people enjoyed really liked. And the truth is, it didn't stop with our parents' generation, because in 1998, a second movie was released about Moses and his journey with the Israelites. Does anyone know what that movie was? Okay, mixed crowd here. All right, Prince of Egypt is where the parade was headed. Full confession, I just saw this for the first time last night. No, I... Listen, I don't need an email or shame. I don't know what was going on in 1998 that I was so busy that I couldn't see this, but anyway, I did see it last night. Now, this movie, the second movie that was released about this, um, was also wildly successful. It was financially super successful, and it even had, and actually as you heard in here today, has a cult following to this day. 
And uh, I know that some of you are in the room. My best friend Heidi is one of you. So bless. Um, look, the story of Moses and the Israelites, the story we've been sitting in all summer, is one that the world has undoubtedly at some level been captivated by. So much so that even Hollywood has thrown money and time and energy into telling it and selling it. Which at a few levels tells us that there is something in the human soul that not only resonates but seemingly cheers and even hungers for a great story like this about deliverance. It seems that somewhere in the human condition there is a desire to know rescue and not only for ourselves but for others as well to know a rescue that would change our reality. This great deliverance story that we all know so well and all love to hear is important. But I also think that it's a story that we all long to experience. Like I mentioned, we've been in the book of Exodus this summer and we're working through it line by line, story by story. And this is, if you've been following along, a bit of a heavy lift. We do that around here, but this has felt a little heavy. There's a lot to say about Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, and a lot to say and learn from the people themselves. Now, last week, you'll remember, we had Josh White here from Door of Hope, and he shared and reminded us that this whole story that we're in actually points to Jesus, that the imagery and the language we see woven into the Exodus story finds its culmination in the work of Jesus on the cross. Now, hopefully, You've had the chance to listen to the other podcast that was released last week. How many of you did that? Okay, little shame, uh, a little shame shower, okay? You should go back and listen to it. Tim Mackey's on it, Tyler's on it, and it's all about the Passover. That would catch you up to today. You can do it this afternoon, and we'll just tell no one. Uh, all that's to say, that's where our story ended last, was with Passover. Now, Passover, as we heard in the podcast, the three of us who listened, was uh, the moment for the Israelite people where they not only experienced God's power, but also his ultimate protection. I just say that to say that Passover was and is a critical part of God's story, a part of God's deliverance of his people. And it is where we're gonna pick up today. So with that, we're gonna look at our story uh, this morning and we're gonna frame it through three different movements. Significant shifts, looking back, and promise over peace. Let's get started, yeah? Big day, trying to follow up that Prince of Egypt. Now, um, normally, I would work through this text line by line, uh, try to exegete this for you, but today I just had a really strong sense that I wasn't supposed to do that, um, that I was simply to review the story with you, and then from there, draw your attention to some significant symbols or significant moments or acts from Yahweh that I think are going to help shape where the Spirit is leading us this morning. Does that sound okay to you? Yeah, it sounds so good. You're like, a story, love it. Now, if you wanna have your Bibles in front of you, you can. I'm gonna hop around between chapter 13 and 14. If you're kind of a Bible nerd, this might be fun for you. Um, if you're not, you just wanna chill, this is your moment to do that, but please don't fall asleep. Um, all right, let's do it. Exodus 13, starting in verse 17. You ready? Yeah, all right, it's a slow grind in here this morning. I know it's hot out, but... Uh, I will need feedback at some point. The insecurity is high enough this morning, okay? All right. All right, so our story picks up on the heels of Passover, and what's just taken place, you'll find out in the podcast, was wild. Pharaoh, this great oppressor, has let the Israelite people go. 
go, meaning that he has allowed them to leave Egypt, where they were enslaved to him, and pursue a different life altogether. Now, you'll remember that he does this quite reluctantly, and he does this in the wake of the deaths of many Egyptian children, including his own firstborn son. And in verse 17, we're told that Pharaoh let the people go and that God also led them. He did so, as we read, graciously, because we know that God led them on a road that would ultimately have them avoid a battle or a war with this people group called the Philistines, who we'll hear about later as we move through the scriptures. Now, the author in this moment does this funny thing by calling out what's actually happening. And in so many words, he says, they are taking the long way. The path that Yahweh had them on would not be the most direct route to where they're going, but it was a route that would ultimately keep them from destruction and keep them from changing their mind about God and where he was taking them. And this could seem insignificant to us as we read it in the text, but it is no small thing because Yahweh knew something that the people didn't. And in this moment, we see him being intentional with every step that they're taking. Now, Like I said, this is a significant moment. For me, it feels like a a record scratch kind of moment. I think it's a moment that sets us up for the greater context of the deliverance that's actually coming. So I just wanna name a few things about this. It's really important that we see that God was with Israel. In this moment, prior to the deliverance, God was with him. And it's important for us to understand that his presence wasn't just with them in those big moments when they needed him to do the miracles, but that his presence was also preceding the miracle. And it's important that we see that God was personal. God led them. Yahweh was with them and leading them in a specific direction for their ultimate good. All of this is giving us, the reader, right at the beginning, a snapshot of both God who was protecting them, but also God who was calling them forward into something greater. But he wasn't doing that without his active presence with them. In verse 21, we're told that Yahweh went ahead of the people in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and a fire by night to give them light so that they could travel day or night. And this small tidbit is again a a way of the author emphasizing Yahweh's presence with the people but also his intention in leading them. Now, look over to chapter 14 if you're doing the Bible thing. Now, in chapter 14, some interesting things begin to happen. We read that the Israelites make a bit of a pivot. So they were on their way, the indirect route, and they are told to go camp by the sea. This is called the Sea of Reeds or the Red Sea. And Yahweh, this God, lets Moses, the leader of the people, in on something that's actually taking place in real time as he's leading the people. Pharaoh begins to question his decision, and in that moment, he decides to go after the people he just let go. Yahweh tells Moses, basically, this is not Bible, but not not to panic. Don't panic, dude. Because he says that he's going to use that, that the enemy's pursuit was actually going to bring glory to himself. Now, Pharaoh begins his hunt, and the Israelites catch wind of it. In fact, they can see the army behind them. So casual. In fact, it wasn't. They actually really freaked out in this moment, as you would. They start saying things like, why did you lead us here just to die? And and we would have rather died in Egypt. This is what people say when they are sure of imminent death. You know, those are some of the things. I don't know, but those are some of the things they're throwing out. They have an army behind them who wants to kill them and a sea in front of them. Now, the people could only see those two things. 
And for them, in this moment, there was no way out. I mean, have you really thought about that? Beyond the movies you've seen, there was a moment where they were thinking, that's bad and this is worse. And here we are. So Moses, in the story, goes on and he says, do not be afraid. Stand firm. And I'd be like, yeah, I guess that's what we're all doing, you know? (laughs) Not afraid, not part of the deal, but standing firm, I guess. And he tells them in the same breath that they will also see deliverance that day. And if, if, if I were them, I'd be thinking, deliverance, how? There was no way forward, no way backwards. And so the question you should be asking too is how? And the answer ironically comes so quickly. It's like God knew what he was doing. And, and Moses says to the people as they're going like, what does that even mean? Stand firm. And he says, the Lord will fight for you. Now, the word fight in the Hebrew is exactly what you'd think. It is to make war or to engage in battle. And he does so. And he says, I'm going to fight for you. And he says this so that they can experience this thing they're actually longing to experience called deliverance. Now, deliverance in in the Hebrew can also be read as salvation. So God was going to save them. And not just from something, but for something. These words, the Lord will fight for you, we see them on Instagram all the time, don't we? At least in the the girl Bible vibes, we're all doing it. You know, it's like, the Lord will fight for you. Mm. And uh, and I feel it. Every time I get it, I'm like, yeah. Um, But but this context would have been a little different, at least for the people of the day. When the Israelites heard this, um, it would have been a very unique moment because as we just read, and you heard Natalie read it, at the beginning of our story, we read that the Israelites, when they were leaving Egypt, were ready for battle. Remember that part? That's a unique part of the story. And so there's a beautiful irony happening here because they were never going to have to actually fight, but they were ready. And I've thought about that moment a lot. I've thought about why that was significant. And I've just wondered if it's easy to feel like you have to defend yourself when you felt like you've been fighting for every moment of your life. Something was beginning to change in the atmosphere for the Israelite people. Now, in verse 15, Yahweh wastes no time, and as he declares to the people, the Lord will fight for you, he at the same time, in the same breath, tells them to move on. Now, I don't know what kind of mother you had. Honestly, I don't really want to hear about it this morning, but I'm kidding. It's a, it's a little bit of a joke. Now, my mother is more aggressive um, in nature. It's hard to believe, right? Uh, it's crazy. Uh, but some moms are like sweet, and they're like, okay, sweetie, let's just start taking some steps. And my mom always said things like, move. Move, move. And we were three, but I don't know how hard it was to hurt us. I have no idea. Anyway, that's what I imagine uh, in this moment where you always like, move on, moving on. So he says, I'm gonna fight for you. And he tells them to move forward basically into the water. And it's like he's saying to them, I've got this. Now go. Walk forward into what feels like the impossible and trust that my fighting behind you is always connected to the path in front of you. Moses then lifts his arms, and in a famous and quite climactic moment, the people actually move. In faith, I guess it was their only option. I mean, that's what I'd be thinking. It's like, all right. And then we read that they all cross over, all million of them, which is insane. Have you ever thought about how long that took? A lot, because some of the moms were like, you're doing good, sweetie. You know, and then (laughs) my mom's in the back, move! Anyway, they all cross over. And by the way, that's just a gigantic miracle you should sit and think about sometimes. 
because that's kind of amazing. It should tell you a lot of things about God. But if you remember, that's not the end of the story because it's here that we find Yahweh's presence beginning to turn now to Pharaoh and his army. The people are moving this way and he begins to move this way and we see Yahweh begin to fight. And he does so with confusion and in this like funny, like practical way, he like starts jamming people's wheels. It, did you, it, it's in the text, it's so weird, but I think it's so cute of God, where he's like jamming wheels and chariots or whatever, flipping over, and it's beginning to happen. And in this moment in the text, we actually read that Pharaoh knew that Yahweh was fighting for God's people, that they knew that there was a war happening. And Moses, after the people cross, we know, lowers his arms, and the waters swallow up the entire enemy right before Israel's eyes. And Israel's now across the Red Sea, and when they look back, they see nothing. No enemy, no one behind them, just peace. Israel was not only delivered in their greatest moment of impossibility, but Yahweh once again showed them that he was a God who was not only protecting them, but freeing them up to go to places they could not go on their own. Now, that's the end of the story. Pretty good, right? Yeah, not bad. Now, we've got this story in front of us, and um, my job today is just to draw our attention to a few things that I think really matter here, and a few things to me that really stand out. You'll remember that in this series, we've been talking about the cadence or the melody found in the book of Exodus, and how that melody is actually mirrored all throughout the scriptures. And, and hopefully you'll remember it goes like this. Creation, enslavement, liberation, renewal. Do you remember that? Do you want to sing it with me? Okay, let's do it. Let's get a little jazzy. I don't have any tunes, so let's just like, creation, enslavement, yeah, liberation, renewal. Not doing it again, but I loved that moment with you. Now, today in Exodus, if we were to listen to the melody, we would be in the wildly significant and catalytic hum of enslavement to liberation. Enslavement to liberty or freedom. This is something that if you're in Jesus and living in the West, you probably understand at a soul level. But for the Israelites people, uh, for the Israelite people, this was more than just a spiritual experience for them. It was a physical reality. In fact, it was their entire reality for 400 years. Bound to work in Egypt, to sit under the rule of an oppressive leader with scarce resources and thinning hope, enslavement for the people of Israel was in their bones. It was worn on their blistered hands and their blood-stained shirts. And so in this moment in our story, in this moment we've often just framed as the great deliverance. I think we have to, if we're actually going to understand what's happening here, we have to stop and recognize what's taking place. And how Yahweh in this great act of liberty is calling their eyes and our eyes to see what it really means. What is deliverance all about and what is it for? And, and, and how do, in what we see him doing, how does that allow our, our hearts to understand that deliverance must be more than just a rescue? But maybe it is in fact a reorientation of the heart. So we're gonna take a minute or two. We're gonna name some of the significant shifts we see in our text and how each of these tell a story about Yahweh, who he is and what he's doing. If you're taking notes, this is our first movement. 
Now, there are four shifts in the narrative that at a theological, practical level uh, stand out as significant to me. These are just mine. You can observe your own, but these feel significant. So let's start with the first, from oppressor to shepherd. Remember that when our story opened originally, we find the Israelite people in bondage. We find them enslaved in Egypt under Pharaoh, who was undoubtedly cruel. And if you fast forward our story from Exodus 1 all the way to this moment, we actually have had another Pharaoh now who's ruling, and he too is undoubtedly cruel and stubborn, if not more than the one before him. So Israel, for 400 years, knew nothing but a ruler who was not after their good, nor after seeing them flourish in the land but one who was threatened to the point of harm to them and to innocent children. So this part of the text that we find ourselves in today is actually the beginning of a shift. Yes, Moses had already come onto the scene, but what we see in him after the Passover is a leader turned shepherd. We see him move from declarations to invitations. We see in him a reflection, even words from Yahweh. Yes, he would literally lead them to greener pastures, but he would also be to them a shepherd who guides them and cares for them and protects them and demonstrates Yahweh's love for them in his care of them. And this may, I don't know, seem insignificant to the main idea here today, at least to some, but I think this shift is important to note because in it we find not only a shift of relationship of Yahweh to his people through Moses, which is a big deal, but also a shift in how the people can now see themselves. Enslavement forces us to objectify even our own lives. And so in this moment, as the shift begins, the Israelites now are no longer objects to use, but they are stories to be told. They are families to be shaped and people destined to know safety and love and the gift of a new future. How we are loved and what we see in Yahweh here is, as many of us know, the baseline for kingdom life. We don't live with an oppressor. We live with a shepherd. We don't ever live under a dictator, but under a father who would give all that he had for his children. The difference between a loved individual and a neglected and used individual is worlds apart. Because we know, all of us humans know, that how we love and how we are loved shapes our lives like anything else in the world. A shepherd loves and an oppressor neglects. And love opens the door to a thousand new realities and a thousand new outcomes. This is the way of faith. This is the way of the kingdom. Love changing every story. This is our story. This is your story. So this shift, this imagery that we see here is telling us a story about the people and also about ourselves. You see, what's being told to us is that love will now lead and oppression and the neglect of who they are will not have the final word. Yahweh as a shepherd would be present to them. Before even the miracle came, he would be present because for him it wasn't enough to stand far off. He had to come close. He had to come close so that they could understand that love was the on-ramp to experiencing and also understanding what their deliverance actually meant. So that's our first shift. Second shift. This one's a little bit uh, unique uh, in that our story actually starts out with it. So our story starts with a fire for one. Do you remember that? Okay, I do. Uh, Burning bush, remember that? 
Yeah, in the Prince of Egypt, it's purple. Cool. Uh, I don't want to spoil anything, but it was, it was purple for a minute. <laughs> uh, so there's a burning bush, and there's Moses right at the beginning. And then in our text today, we actually see fire into the story again, the same fire that represents the presence of God. And it now becomes not just visible to one, but visible to all. So a fire for one to a fire for all. Now, if you know anything about ancient literature, it's important to know that this imagery is actually telling us a story. It's a cue for us in the text. In the burning bush, we know that God's presence was known through fire, that Moses had a life-changing encounter with Yahweh at the burning bush. And now, as we read, we see that fire again, and it shows us a significant reminder of God's witness of God's presence with his people. And at some level, too, it's reiterating this relational dynamic that Yahweh is now infusing into the story. And I don't know, I just keep imagining the people, like, camping out, which, like, yikes, (laughs) but camping by the sea. Some of you are like, what? Don't worry about it. Camping out and, like, thinking, like, all of a sudden, this fire from heaven, which is already alarming, you know? They've had a weird month, but... It's already pretty alarming. There's a huge fire tunnel just in the camp. So that already would be a little terrifying, right? Just try to sit in the story, like a little scary. And then you'd have to imagine that they'd be thinking like, I thought I remember Moses saying something about a fire. You know I mean? We didn't believe him because it was weird. But, you know, like, dude's good and he's been really kind to us. Is that the same as this? Do you know what I mean? They would have been connecting the dots. That was God's presence. And this is God's presence to us, too. That's a pretty big deal. Because now Yahweh wasn't just present to an individual who who was ready to receive the word, but he was saying, I'm available to all of you. I want you all to see that I am here with you. And the cool part is Israel never had to wonder if God was with them. Because he deliberately makes himself known, and he didn't have to do that. And this was for them, probably more than it was for him. This was their way to not only trust, but believe that he would take care of them. Like if they were having a bad day, maybe just look up at the cloud, you know, on the left and then the fire on the right, you know, like he is with me. This is an experience of God not taking his eyes off of me, which means that whatever was frightening to me, whatever was scary to me, that I didn't actually have to be afraid because this fire in the camp was telling a story to me. It was telling me that whatever lies in front of me and whatever's threatening behind me, Yahweh is here. And this shift, I think, is an act of both mercy and compassion because Yahweh knows the fragility of the human heart. And so he, like a good father, comes near, especially when they're most afraid. Now third, we also see water as a significant part of our story, primarily it's seen here as an obstacle, which totally makes sense. But the shift is that this obstacle of water, just like it was when Moses was sent out into the Nile uh, in, in, as a baby, do you remember that? It, it was actually the vehicle for God's deliverance, and this was just the second time. It was a baptism of sorts. So water now moves from being an obstacle to the vehicle of deliverance. Water historically in the biblical literature represents the power to purify or to provide deliverance, but also to destroy evil. Water is used all throughout the scriptures to tell the story of God's nature, his character, and his ability to have dominion over what would seem like the wildness of the enemy. And in our story, the same is true. 
Water is always symbolic of something generative, something life-giving. And so the shift we see, honestly, I think one of the greatest shifts we see in our story today is that water, while for Israel represented certain death and impossibility, not presenting an opportunity for life, actually becomes the gateway for a better life than they would have ever known. But it just took a minute, right? They were like, yikes, no. Um, And remember, they were probably feeling trapped, enemy behind them, sea in front of them. Water to them did not represent purification or a gateway, but an impossibility. But water, as Yahweh demonstrated, his power by ruling over it became that threshold for deliverance. The impossible vision of the sea before them, that only way forward, even though it was blocked, actually became the threshold for God to do his most miraculous and powerful work yet. And that's a word for someone. What was impossible to them via the water was actually the obstacle God used to reveal how much bigger he was than the obstacle. And that also is a word. Their obstacles were his threshing floor to destroy both the enemy behind them but also to provide the miracle before him. Are you catching some of the rhythms? Water, this Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds was their baptism into a miracle that only Yahweh could do. The Red Sea was their invitation, the impossible situation, to trust God and to allow their souls to first be delivered before their bodies were delivered. And that's how he works. Now finally, uh, we see the shift in our story from compliance to participation. Uh, Anyone seen Flight of the Navigator? I think it's you and me, bud, honestly. I tried this at the last one, it's tough. My sister is kind of a Trekkie vibe, you know? So we watched, anyway, we all get to pick movies. I loved it. Anyway, in that movie, this won't make any sense, he says, compliance, remember? A lot, okay. So he enjoyed it, we had a nice time. Welcome to this moment. Uh, Compliance is the word I'm using here because it's the best I've got. Um, But what I mean here is that we see people shifting out of a different yieldedness into an actual act of participation. And when it comes to Yahweh, this is kind of how he works because we're not slaves to him. Yahweh, from Genesis to this moment, has been a God-in-the-mix kind of God, a God who comes near in the cool of the day, as you know, and a God who longs to know and be known. He wants to join with his creation to bring about the realities of his kingdom. It's this wild thing. I'm so glad we're all here. So this shift in our story actually isn't surprising to those of us who know a little bit about God this way. The people of Israel had lived under the oppression or oppressor who actually forced them to live a lifestyle. These people were yielded and yoked to oppressors' desires and wishes, so everything they did, they did at all costs because it meant their own survival. And just so you know, that is exactly how the enemy works. But now, in our text, we see that Yahweh has actually seen enough. And he would not only be fighting for their freedom, which is what he does, but he's also fighting for their dignity, which is also what he does. Deliverance would not be compliance with a way out. Do you know what I mean? But it would actually mean participation in a miracle. That is how God wanted to deliver them. And it's a very crucial part of our story because Yahweh tells the people in this moment that they do not have to be afraid and that he's going to fight for them, which, by the way, is the opposite of what an oppressor would say to you. He usually says you have to do it on your own, right? 
So, so we can't miss this because Yahweh says all these things and he doesn't just say them. He doesn't sit back and relax. And the breath next that he takes, he says, now go. So like in so many words in this moment where this shift is taking place and he's beginning to invite them to participate in what he's doing because he's like, this is not who you are. This is not who you are. He says to them, take my word, start taking a step forward out of the old identity and start stepping towards who I actually have made you to be. And you don't have the full picture. But your job is to start to move from where you are and then I will show you who I am and what I can do. But until you look to me, until you start to engage, you won't fully understand or even have the energy it takes to move in that direction. Participation is a two-person event. It's a, it's a partaking of something. And Yahweh's invitation to them was to partake of his nature, of his goodness, of what was on offer. And it would be from that point that they would begin to have faith to move forward. They were not forced to comply. None of them but they were invited to partake. Participation, particularly with God, is something that demands faith and trust. But it is also something that always catalyzes dignity in a way that few other things on earth can. And Yahweh, unlike the enemy, unlike an oppressor, is always finding ways to remind us of who we are and what we're worth. And this was his invitation to do it. See, so many of us are trying to figure out those questions without him. So many of us are still entering into these places and going, I am sort of participating with God, but not at, full, not at the full speed because I don't know and you know, he doesn't understand and all these things and there's an invitation to actually participate with him so that you can know whose you are and how you were designed. Now, these shifts all carry a lot of things for us to grab and hopefully the Spirit's been speaking to you, but um, I, I wanna speak to some of those things in a minute, but before we get there, we actually first have to, to take a minute and lean into, I think, a bit more of the uncomfortable part of this story because we've talked a ton about what Yahweh has done, which is rad, like it's amazing, it's a love story to us. But what is equally important for us to get, especially if we're meant to capture this whole picture of what's going on in deliverance, it will mean that we actually have to observe also the people's response. And this leads us to our second movement, looking back. So these shifts we just observed, while very significant, also reveal the nature of the human soul. They just do. And it's what we call in the biz, the rub. And here it is. Israel, in our story, while at least through our lens and the way that we can read it or watch it on the screen, is being totally and wildly rescued. Like we're like, what? So good, yay God. Um, and yet in the story, there's like these moments where we get glimpses into the Israel people and we can see that they're still a little grumpy and a little ungrateful. And um, at least that's how I've read it. That's maybe my confession. I read it sometimes that way. And I've said that before in teachings that it's easy for me to judge the silly, ridiculous people in the Bible. I'm always like, you're being so dumb. And then I realize like, I'm so dumb. Sometimes, you know what I'm talking about? And then you're like, oh, that's the point. So I got that. So Israel, as I'm observing them in our story, instead of jumping to faith and excitement, almost immediately, even at these acts of God, goes right to fear. And each of us, and all of us, there's a tendency to do and respond how Israel did, even in the midst of a great deliverance. 
You know, as a review, here's some of the shifts that were taking place. Oppressors were being defeated. Liberty was on its way. Fire was in the camp. God was with them. Waters were beginning to part in certain moments. And their participation meant that they wouldn't just know the power of God, but they would know his love and his call for them and their future. And yet, even with all those things on the horizon and happening in the story, we see fear rising. We see their sight skewed and enslavement calling. We see them looking back. In chapter 14, with the enemy very visible to them, and yet the presence of God by fire in their camp, they began not just to wonder, but declare that life would have been better if they had not been delivered. You see, deliverance at that moment began to represent a lack of control a lack of an ability to see or know what comes next or how it will happen. And all of a sudden, the chains that were so familiar began to loosen. And that feeling was a new sensation. That is a a scary and a terrifying thing. It's also a scary thing to think that old familiar chains can often sound more melodic and safe than the new clanging songs of deliverance to us. That because the old ways are what we know, and this is a new thing and a new place, and it's just so terrifying, that we're actually living in a tension with the impossibility before us and behind us, and so it demands from us something that we're not used to doing, which, which is to move from who I have been to who I was made to be. Deliverance in that very real human scenario meant that they would have to have maybe holy imaginations for the first time to be engaged in what we call faith for what could be. Trust that that could potentially be a gateway to their lives changing forever, but this trust would cost them the familiar. It would cost them the safe and it would cost them the anonymity of bondage, which is what bondage does. You become many, not one, hidden by the darkness of what you're enslaved to. And all they could think to do in that moment was look back. To look back and wonder. Looking back, as most of us know, is often the great distorter of present vision. Nostalgia or the great ideal and safety of what was or the illusion that we write in our minds actually is stealing the great oxygen of faith And for them, we see it stealing it right out of the camp. You see, the act of deliverance that you experience can either dilute your vision because you're looking back or it can direct your vision because you're looking towards something greater. Israel, they weren't crazy for looking back. Who could blame them? But they did have a choice in that moment. They could either allow the perspective to actually give them courage for what could be or they could allow it to pull them back to what was. And that decision is at the heart of our third movement, promise over peace. The standout for me in the text today, and really the heart of this teaching as I've spent time praying and seeking Jesus over the last week or so, it all lands here for me. This story, this like super famous story that we've all heard and probably known most of our lives could just be a delicate reminder to us of how cool God is and how it's like fire and whatever else inspires you. But as I've sat with this and as God has deeply met me, I am definitely certain that's not all there is. Uh, The image 
<laughs> Yikes, all I could find. <laughs> Did the best I could here. Um, this image of the people with the enemy behind them and the sea before them um, is one that's actually just kind of stuck on me. You know how that begins to happen? It's one that I've tried to shake from my mind a few times, um, but it's just kind of stuck to the old soul. Because this image for me represents the contrast in my own life uh, of promise and of a life of peace. Israel felt that there was a real threat of the enemy. And in human terms, they were under threat. And they weren't crazy, like I said, to feel that way. They were standing between what was, which was like the familiar, even if it did come with shame and bondage and brokenness, even if it was what they knew. Um, but they were also standing between the place of what could be. And for them, in the faces of their enemies and the fate that would follow their capture and return to enslavement was actually a, a source of peace. The peace that says you know what to expect and how to feel safe. The peace that says you're the same as you've always been and the same as you always will be, and that's true for every outcome in your life as well. The peace that says you know how to do this or how to live this way, you know what it's like to live shackled, ashamed of your story, hidden in the dark. You know what it's like to live in the consistent pattern of feeling like a failure over and over again. And you know how to ignore the nudging of something that tells you you are worth more than that and that there could be a greater destiny ahead of you. You know what it feels like. And for you, that's peace. The peace they felt required no risk and ultimately no cost, all cost actually. And the peace that they're experienced says they have all the control. Peace, the peace behind them is a peace that I know all too well. Now the promise, that was something altogether different. The promise was in front of them but that, that was totally impossible, so great. In fact, the whole place could see how impossible their futures were. So what were the real options? There was a sea, like an actual sea, you know what I mean, body of water, we're not talking about like a little tiny lake or whatever, a sea that was over a mile deep ooh, with fish and wildlife ah, uh, in there, yikes, yucky, um, seriously, like no. Uh, a sea stood between them and, and, and not just a future that they knew, but a mysterious future that they had never seen outlined before. The invitation was to a place that they had never known. So I imagine that the promise didn't feel like it was actually going to be theirs. Yes, they heard that it was a land of milk and honey, of goodness and abundance, but I'm sure they were thinking, that's not for us, that's for Egypt. Because they had been conditioned by their oppressor to believe that reality that there's not enough for them. And they had never been this far from what they knew and they started to get freaked out because it was right there. They could see this promise, this mystery before them and they had an opportunity to choose it. Promise, I imagine, at least as far as they could reason in their minds, would mean true deliverance but it would come at such a great cost. Peace and promise is the tension most of us walk in in this life when it comes to Jesus. And like the disciples, we're often presented in finding ourselves in places just like Israel is here in this moment. 
And maybe you don't say that. Maybe that's not the language you use in your life. But the truth is, God is always wanting to save us from something for something. In fact, Paul the Apostle says that you are saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved. This is an ongoing work of transformation. So if you're in Jesus, if you've said yes to him, then this is the outcome. We're constantly between the impossibility and the enemy. And we have an opportunity to either move forward in faith or stay right where we are. And I think what we see in the text today, which I think is kind of a standout, at least for some of us in the room, is that God is not just a deliverer when he's calling us to the promise, but he's actually a defender. That so many of us get caught up in the narrative of the enemy, the big explosive fireworks he tries to do, which is all an illusion because he's just copying the real God. But we get caught up in the mystery of that and we think, oh, maybe he wants to deliver me, but he'll never be able to actually defend me, which mean I, means I can't actually be free. It's this lie, it's this illusion of the enemy, and yet God is calling us forward over and over again. My favorite part of all of this is like, that's all hot and heated and great. But my favorite part of this is that this whole thing starts, you know, God saying, I'm gonna rescue you from this like wildlife and the sea and other things from your enemy who hates you and will oppress and kill you. It all starts with one cry. In Exodus 2, we read that the cry of the Israelites reached the ears of Yahweh. And at that point, he could do nothing but rush in to save his children. I think some of us just need to know that. That, that our stories are usually starting with a cry of like, God help me. I'm here, I'm in the in-between, I'm stuck in the middle and I need your help. I think it's that cry that forces us to maybe lift our eyes off our circumstances to the one who can actually deliver us from what's going on. Now, um, over the last two weeks, I've really been, I don't know if you can tell, I've really gotten my butt kicked by this text, which is like, you know, because I've studied the Bible a lot in my life, and I'm so young, and yet so seasoned, and, um, and yet God has been doing real work in me um, that's been really painful, and this was like even long before I actually even remembered what I was teaching on, because I remember I told you I was in Europe, too bad, and uh, it was amazing, if you're wondering, um, and so I wasn't caring about anything. I mean, I care about the Bible over there, but I just care differently. And, um, <laughs> but even in Europe, um, what's, what's odd is I look back now and I can see that the Lord was starting this conversation with me. Um, nightly, Heidi and I would check in um, about our days and um, multiple times she would say to me, that's the snake speaking to you. And I remember feeling in multiple moments this pull back to, I felt like God had been saying, I'm about to do something. I'm about to call you forward again. And I, I remember thinking at night, I would say things like, um, yeah, I don't think so. Like he definitely does that for a lot of people and it's like my gift and my joy to see that happen for others. But I don't know if he actually does it for me. And she'd be like, that's the snake. Um, and, or I'd be like, yeah, yeah, totally. That's, maybe that could be happening. Like, and, and my faith was just no. And I was like, you know what? I know these old ways. I know it's familiar to me in my thinking and in my feeling. And I still felt like God was like, but what if I had more? And I was like, I don't know, man. Get off my back. I'm in France. <laughs> um, and I think I just say that to you to say that um, I 
know what it's like to feel enslaved, but also I specifically know what it's like to feel in the middle. And I also know what it feels like for God to say, I wanna save you from something for something. And um, I just wanna say this, and then I'm gonna just end right now. Um, and I wrestled with God all week because I was like, this is a weird teaching, it's summer. Um, and yeah, I felt like God said to me, um, you know, kind of aggressively, which is, I love to be spoken to, I guess, that way. <laughs> just said, you know, um, do you have, are you, are you wanting to say something to the people? And I just felt like, yeah, God had really given me a clear burden, born out of my own brokenness, to say to you. Um, and I'm saying it as a mother in this house um, who loves you and prays for you and burns for you and all of that. So I'm gonna say two things and then we're gonna end. Is that cool? I think this story was for us today. I mean, I know it was for me, but I also think specifically it was for some of you. Like I think you needed to be reminded about who God is and what he wants for you. But I also think I'm specifically supposed to say there is so much more. And on the mom side of things, like I think you know it. Um, and, and so like the burden today is just to say to you, um, maybe you felt like you're in the middle. Maybe it's just been a season where you've been looking at both the enemy and you got like one toe in. And you're like, yeah, I like want that to be true. But I'm so scared and I can hear. I, even though you're here, I, I can hear this calling that feels safer. And I just felt like the Lord wanted to say today, step all the way in. Um, and, and, and then he'll meet you. And even if it feels scary, there's a, there's a point where we all have to say, I'm going to turn my back completely to the enemy and all the narratives he's said about me, which he's saying, trying to say to me right now. You turn your back and you set your face like flint towards the redemptive work of Jesus by faith. Faith is what we hope for, but things we cannot see. And if that's how you feel, then it's faith. And so I just feel like for some of you, you gotta do that today, okay? Just like lovingly, I'm cheering you on because I had to get my butt kicked too. So I'm with you. It's not like you're alone. And, and it's been better than I could have ever imagined and harder than I could have ever imagined. The other thing I wanna say is like communally, I had this growing sense all week as we were praying as a staff and just feeling, dreaming about what God could do through this really simple teaching. And it was that um, maybe more than just the individuals in the room, we could as a, as a family say, um, you know, God's been doing a lot among us. It feels like fires in our camp. I mean, I feel that way. I'm like freaking out sometimes. I'm like, not sure what's going on. Is this like a healthy church? You know, I'm just kidding. I know it's healthy. It's just so mind blowing. And God's with us, and not to be fantastical about it, but just God's with us and doing something, and I think he's willing to do more. And so I just sense that maybe together today in our hearts we could say, we'll all go. We'll set our faces like flint, and when the enemy comes, we'll stomp on the serpent and keep moving. I think we have to do that, because I wanna see what's on the other side with you, and I think there's more for us.